All right, well, good morning. Hey, uh, Quinn and Sadie are going to be taking the kids to our Redeemer Kids Church. If you'd like your kids to join them, they are more than welcome to. That's Quinn and Sadie right there. Then if you have younger kids, at any point you want to take them back into our, our Redeemer Tots area, we've got Jason and Casey and Kyla back there that are working with, with the younger kids as well. All right. Well, hey, good morning. How did everybody do yesterday? All you runners, how'd you do? How are your legs feeling? Good? Yeah? Okay? Yeah? We have a celebrity among us, by the way. Katie Hines was interviewed by WAND yesterday because she ran for an international justice mission and, and raised, raised money for that. So that's pretty awesome. So you can actually go on the website and check it out. But that was cool. I was really excited. I never watched the news, and so I just happened to have it on that day, and I was like, it's Katie! You're like, we have this... <laughs> Yeah, I don't get like celebrity struck, so you're the closest thing I've got, you know. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> let me ask you this. What comes to mind when you think about the word authority? When that word enters your mind, who do you think of? Maybe, maybe God, maybe parents, maybe the government or police or Jesus or the Bible or something like that, right? Now, let me ask you this. What what is your natural disposition towards those in authority? Right? What's your first reaction? What's your gut response to knowing that this person is in charge over you? Right? How, how do you respond? What's your attitude towards, say, your parents or professors or even pastors for that matter? Right? We're not exempt. You know, in some cases it could be favorable, but in other cases it's, it's not so favorable. Like, like with police, right? Some of you, when you think about police, you think about serve and protect, right? You think about the function that they serve in our society. You're grateful for it. But others of you think about arrests and traffic tickets and abuse of power and maybe, you know, your, your, the latest crime movie where there's corrupt cops or whatever, and, and that, that affects your disposition towards them. And have you ever noticed that your attitude towards those sources of authority, um, it greatly affects your willingness to obey them, right? Like if you respect them, if you honor them, if you're grateful for their position, whatever it is, you're delighted to obey. You're delighted to follow. But if you are rejecting that, if you're skeptical, if you doubt their position or their faithfulness, then, then you don't want to. You, you reject it, right? You'll, you'll either rebel or fight back or you'll reluctantly do it, sort of nagging and complaining and grumbling all the way, or you'll do whatever you can to delay your obedience for as long as possible. I'm just going to keep trying to put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off, right? And have you ever noticed that there are certain things, there are certain factors that affect your attitude towards those in authority? Now, there may be more, but I've kind of figured out there's four primary factors that affect our attitudes towards authorities. First, we're more willing to submit to authorities when we understand and believe in the purpose of their positions, right? We recognize why they're there, the reasoning behind it, right? We understand the concept, then we're more willing to obey. We're more willing to comply. If, if we understand that the police are there to serve and protect, we're much more compliant towards them than if we think that they're just a bunch of crooks who are trying to give us traffic tickets, right? 
Second, our attitude is affected by our affirmation of the need for the rules that their position of authority upholds. Okay, this is different than the position itself. These are the rules that they are there to uphold, right? So, keeping in line with police, if you do not think that it is necessary for you to drive 65 miles an hour on the highway, you're going to be a lot more willing and, and eager to disobey or disregard that law, and you'll be angry when you get a ticket for breaking the speed limit, right? Because you don't see the need behind that rule. Third, you are more likely to submit to an authority if you perceive that that person is trustworthy. And if you don't trust that person, that, that authority, then you won't submit to them. And fourth, and this is probably the most systemic factor in our culture, um, your attitude towards authorities is affected by your own opinion of yourself. If you think too highly of yourself, you are not going to obey authorities. You're going to think that you don't need to or that you don't want to. And at its core, that is a fight for authority. I want to be in control. I want to do what I want to do. This is my life. You can't say so. And the higher your opinion is of yourself, the more unwilling you are to submit to authority. Okay? Now, this is not a sermon about obeying the authority structures that God has placed in your life. Though I will say to obey those authority structures is to obey God and to challenge those authority structures is to challenge God. But what we're looking at this morning is that you have Jewish religious leaders who are rejecting the authority of Jesus. They're challenging who he is. They want to know why he does what he does or who gave him the right to do what he's doing. They want him to answer to them. Right? They want to be the authorities. They want to be in charge. And this is, these are the attitudes that keep coming up. But as we'll see from the sermon, that Jesus has all authority from heaven. Right? Jesus can do what he wants. And by right of who he is, as our king, he should rule over our lives. That's where we're going this morning. So turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. This page 848 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. I encourage you to read along with us. Again, it's Mark 11, 27 through 33. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This passage is all about authority. Okay? First, in verses 27 and 28, we see that the Jewish leaders are questioning the authority of Jesus. 
Now, this is Tuesday of the Passion Week, right? Chapters 11 through 16 are lay out Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem through his teaching and rejection, through his betrayal, through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. All of that happening in one glorious week, right? In chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, we have Palm Sunday. This is when Jesus enters Jerusalem in all his glory, right? And we saw this great fanfare that was happening. Like people were laying down their cloaks. They were laying down palm branches. They were crying out and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest as Jesus rode towards Jerusalem in this donkey. The following day, on Monday, we have verses 12 through 19, where Jesus curses the fig tree, and then he makes his way to the temple to curse the worship that took place there. And that brings us to Tuesday, chapter 11, verse 20, through the end of chapter 13, is all focused on one big day. In the morning, Jesus taught his disciples about faith and prayer as Peter was shocked by the fact that this fig tree that Jesus had cursed had withered. I mean, that's what we looked at last week, right? Today we are going to see what is the start of a very, very long day for Jesus, where he is constantly being challenged by these religious leaders over and over and over and over again. This is a long day where his authority is being called into question. Verse 27 And then they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now this is two days after this big celebrated entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, causing great commotion, great fanfare. This was followed by the very next day when Jesus just wrecks the temple, turning everything over, like just shattering the business that was taking place there, right? Two big events. And so by nature, like, of course, these people are going to come and approach Jesus as he's going back into the temple again. They're like, what's he going to do this time? What's going to happen now? I mean, we saw what happened the first two days. This is day number three. This can't be good. And so they went and, and approached him. And this is no ragtag, random collection of people. This is an official delegation of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish people. Okay, these it it contains these priests and scribes and elders. The priests were the temple officials. The scribes were lawyers and judges and teachers on all matters concerning the law. And the elders are these lay leaders. They are the aristocracy. They control all the commerce of Jerusalem. And so this is the cream of the crop. These are the powerful people in society. This is where it's at. They are the authority. They are the ruling body. Okay? The Sanhedrin was comprised of 71 people made up of these three categories, priests, scribes, and elders. And they were everything. They were the executive, the legislative, the judicial branch. Okay? All into one. They executed, they governed, they established, they judged based upon the law. Right? They were the most powerful people in Jesus' day. Jewish people in Jesus' day. They were the authority. 
And they have just cause for approaching Jesus, right? I mean, he is, he's just made a mess the last two days, just stirring up everything. These people are all over, you know? I mean, who knows what this guy's going to do? He's got that fantastic entrance into Jerusalem, this outburst in the temple the previous day. And in addition to that, they've already heard a lot about his teaching and his miracles that he's performed. He's got this huge crowd that's following him around, and they're tempted. These people are being tempted to follow after Jesus instead of them. They've got to do something. Right? They've got to address him. And so they approach him. They approach him and they want to know flat out, who are you for? Whose side are you on? By what authority are you doing these things? You tell us. We're the authority here. You're on our turf. You tell us by what authority you're doing these things. And underlying this question is the notion that they had not sanctioned Jesus. Right? They didn't tell Jesus to go do it. He did. He was doing it on his own. And so he had to answer them. Well, they had plenty of suspicions as to who Jesus was and by what power he was doing things. Their question is not sincere. They they already had preconceived notions about Jesus' authority. First of all, Jesus was not one of them, right? This is important. He's not one of them. He doesn't have his Ph.D. or his MDiv, right? He wasn't, he wasn't picked out by the judicial and legislative branch. He wasn't voted in, right? He's an, he's an outsider. He's an outcast. He's from some little town in a nowhere burg of Galilee. I mean, this guy is nothing, but yet he's doing all these crazy things. He's stirring everything up. I mean, where does he get off? But that's only part of their preconception. And to see the rest, you actually have to look back from chapters 1 through chapter 10. Okay? I mean, this is is not a new notion for them, right? They're they're not coming sincerely, just kind of asking the question, Hey, tell me, who gave you the authority to do this? I just just want to know, right? Because I'm willing to follow you. Just let me know, right? Back in chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, Jesus is in a synagogue in the middle of Galilee, and he's teaching as one who has authority. Not as the scribes. And the people are marveling at Jesus and all that he's doing. This guy shows up. He's demon-possessed. The demon cries out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus casts out this demon. This display of his power and his authority right there to support the fact that he is teaching with authority. And not only that, but he just he goes throughout the synagogues, these, these basically these churches of the day. And he's, he's doing that time and time again, teaching with authority, casting out demons over and over and over again. They would have got word of this. Then in the end of chapter 1, you've got... This leper who Jesus heals, Jesus tells him, hey, listen, go to the priest. Where's the priest? In Jerusalem. He's going to one of these guys. And he says, look, look what Jesus has done. And he's sharing the good news as he's going. You're telling all about him. So they're aware, right? Chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2, some scribes are listening to Jesus as he's teaching in a house. And he claims to forgive a man's sin, right? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin, but Jesus is claiming to do it. And then he verifies it by healing this guy of his paralysis, only then to turn around and go hang out and eat with sinners. If you're a holy man of God, you don't do that. According to them. But Jesus does it. 
And at the end of chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, the Pharisees saw how Jesus didn't keep the fast or, or hold to their Sabbath traditions. And when they questioned him in the end of chapter, 20, or chapter 2, Jesus claimed to be Lord over the Sabbath. Right? This is saying, I'm Lord over the law. To say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, is the same as saying Lord of the law. Who's Lord over the law? God is, and God alone. But yet Jesus is saying that of himself. And so by this time, they're, they're now plotting, how are we going to destroy this guy? Chapter 3, verse 6. They are plotting with the Herodians, which is basically their enemies, in order to how to get rid of the, how to, Jesus, how to get rid of this guy. They, they don't know. This had to be stopped. Huge crowds began to follow Jesus, right? He's healing all sorts of diseases and disabilities. Demons declare him to be the Son of God as he cast them out in all authority. I mean, this just keeps happening over and over and over again. So by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 32, the scribes had actually come down from Jerusalem with an official decision from the Sanhedrin. And what do they say? Jesus casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons. In short, Jesus is Satan. This dude's the devil. That was their official position as a judicial body. We're not even out of chapter 3 yet. And they've made this determination, right? Fast forward. They keep watching Jesus so that when you come to chapter 7, they question Jesus and his disciples why they do not keep the traditions of the elders. Again, the elders, we know those guys. And he responds, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is applying that to himself, by the way. He's not just quoting Isaiah. It's amazing. Chapter 8, they demand a sign from heaven to test him to see whether or not he was on their side. In chapter 9, they argue with his disciples. In chapter 10, they test him on the issue of divorce. It is clear that they are against Jesus. They're not for him. This is not a sincere question. They don't really care how he's going to answer. They know what they think about Jesus. They are skeptical of everything that he says and does. They called him Satan. I mean, you just don't get more opposed to the authority of Jesus Christ than that. But actually, the most condemning event happened in chapter 8, verse 31. There it says, And Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, he will rise again. Jesus knew, according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, that they would condemn him and deliver him over to the hands of lawless men to be crucified. He knew this. So it didn't matter what Jesus said. It didn't matter to them what Jesus can do, what Jesus has done. None of that matters. They rejected his authority. Chapters 1 through 10 are, are proof of that. That no matter how much Christ proves his authority to them, they're going to reject it. They didn't care. They didn't come to understand Jesus. They came to condemn him. They came to make a fool of him. They came hoping that Jesus might incriminate himself. 
right? Either way that they would win. Because here's the thing about the Sanhedrin, right? All in all, they were a pretty independent group. They got, they had the privilege of governing over their people, both religiously and judicially, on their own, relatively free from the restrictions of Rome, even though Rome was over them, except for one account. They couldn't put someone to death. They couldn't perform capital punishment. And this guy that they wanted to destroy since back in chapter 3, they had no means of actually carrying that out. So their only hope was that Jesus would either make himself look like a fool in front of the people so they'd stop following him, or he would incriminate himself and get himself killed by the Romans. And that's what they're there to do. They're trying to bait him. This is a trap. Now, we have to stop here for a moment and think about some things. Everyone comes to these stories about Jesus. You come to the Bible with preconceived notions about who Jesus is and what he can actually do. Everyone in this room does it. doesn't matter who you are. You come with these notions. You have initial thoughts or ideas about who Jesus is, and these will affect your willingness to hear the truth and listen to what he says. What better proof do you need than these men, right? These, some of these guys are the scribes. Folks, nobody knows God's law better than the scribes. Nobody knows God's word better than these men. They have taught for years to anticipate the coming Christ and to look for the signs and wonders that he would perform as a verification of who he is. And when that man actually comes, when he's there right in front of them, do they look at the word and they put two and two together? No. Because they've come with their preconceived notions. This is not the man. He's not who they want him to be. They didn't go back and check the word and rethink their position. No, they actually hardened their hearts against him. They were blinded by their desire for power and expectations for who they wanted Jesus to be. This guy wasn't it. Right? He, he was not the Christ that they wanted. They, want, they had a set, I want this to be my Savior. I want this to be my Deliverer. I want this to be my Lord. And if he doesn't fit it, then he's not it. What does that tell you about who's the authority in their lives? Their preconceived notions led them away from the truth rather than towards it. They, they failed to carefully listen and consider the claims even though they were in the best position of anyone to see the connections. A blind man can see better than these guys. So don't let your presuppositions blind you to the truth. Listen to God's word. What is it saying? What is Jesus saying here? What's he doing? What is God telling us? And rather than question him, submit to his authority. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have confessed. Okay? You need to ask yourself, who is Jesus really? Who does the Bible say that he is? Who has he proven himself to be? And do I believe that? I mean, do I, do I really, really believe that? And if so, what impact does that have on my attitude, on my thinking, on my decisions, on the way I live my life today and every day? 
Because if he is the authority, then it does. So that's the first point, questioning authority. Second, in verse 20, verses 29 and 30, we see that Jesus is the questioning authority. Now, I'm obviously doing a play on words. I'm doing that for SJ, so enjoy. Yeah, right? Hopefully that's not too cheeky. Um, anyway, um, Jesus replies there in verse 29. Um, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. Then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, Jesus knows how to play their game, right? And in traditional rabbinic form, he answers their question with a question. He turns it back around on them, right? They come to Jesus, and they ask him a question, and they are demanding an answer. And what does Jesus do? Well, let me ask you a question, and I'm going to demand an answer, not just once, but twice. You answer me. That's amazing. I wish I was that witty. <clears throat> Those that come to Jesus with their own agenda are only going to find themselves confronted by Jesus' agenda. You ever notice that? All right? You thinking about who Jesus is and what that impact that ought to have on your life. As you come to Jesus, you're going to be confronted, not with your agenda. He's not going to answer you in the way that you want him to. You're going to answer to him. It's his agenda. It's interesting that in Mark, those who approach Jesus with hostility never receive direct answers. They never receive incontrovertible proofs from him in the way that they desire. Instead, in order to have the kind of faith that Jesus seeks, one has to infer on one's own by whose authority Jesus does these things. You've got to see it for yourself. And it's plain. It's right there. So in other words, Jesus is going to make you rethink your preconceived notions. And he's going to force you to come to terms with who he really is. Either you're going to accept him or you're going to reject him. Right? That, but either way, Jesus is the, rea- is the true authority. He is who he is. That can't change. And, and even if you walk away rejecting Jesus, this is the amazing thing. Deep down, you know who he really is. And you're angry about it. And you hate it. And you're ashamed of it. But all the while, you can't get it out of your head that He is who He says He is. Jesus is the real authority. If Jesus didn't really have authority, He would have long ago faded away into non-existence. We wouldn't be talking about Jesus today if He didn't have authority. Do you ever think about that? Like, how is it that a carpenter from Nazareth changes the face of the world? No one has been written more about, right? No one. And this guy's a carpenter who ministered for three years with 12 little guys who are nothing. Fishermen. Just, they couldn't even get along with one another. They're fighting all the time over their own authority. But yet Jesus uses them. I mean, think about that. Even in the midst of extreme opposition, the authority of Jesus continues to go forward. And in fact, this is always mind-boggling. The more hostile people are to him, and the more they try to fight against him and reject him and to kill his people, that's when his kingdom advances the most. That's when his glory, his authority is seen throughout the world more than any other times. 
You want to kill Jesus, kill it with affluence. Don't kill it with a sword. It's amazing. He cannot be thwarted. It's Jesus' authority that makes rebels so hostile against him, and that hostility ends up serving as a catalyst and a fuel for the progress of his authority being made known throughout the world. It's amazing. These men questioning Jesus are proof of that. Who killed Jesus? These men. That's exactly what's happening in this passage. Like it or not, all of us will answer to Jesus. We will play by his rules. He will turn all of our indictments and all of our questions back on his accusers. Now, Jesus is asking about John's baptism. This is an argument from lesser to the greater. Okay, If John's baptism, which stands for the whole of John's ministry is from heaven, then Jesus, whose ministry is greater than John's, is from heaven. You see how that works? An argument from lesser to the greater. Okay? John the Baptist was well known by these men. Alright? They were not lost on who this guy was. It's not like they didn't really know. Okay? His ministry began before Jesus. And after 450 years of silence from Malachi, For years and years and years, God was silent towards his people until John the Baptist shows up on the scene as God's prophet, speaking God's words, fulfilling Isaiah 40. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And Mark tells us that John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Matthew tells us that many of these leaders, these these priests, these scribes, these elders, came out to see John's ministry, and he rebukes them as a brood of vipers. No, they're well acquainted with John. They also remember John because of his political entanglements. It was John who was beheaded by Herod because he had preached that it was unlawful for Herod to be married to his sister-in-law. But Jesus mentions John because his ministry prepared the way for Jesus. Now remember, he came, as Isaiah said, to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, Isaiah means he prepared the way for God, right? But the New Testament in John himself applies this verse to Jesus. He came to prepare the way for Jesus, meaning that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God, right? John says that after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And who shows up in the very next verse? Jesus. In Matthew 3, John says that Jesus, to Jesus that he needs to be baptized by Jesus. Right? But Jesus says, No, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. 
And John in the New Testament testified that when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And John said of Jesus, Behold, Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. As I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That is what's packed into John's baptism. The need, the recognition, the desire to repent of sin, the recognition that Jesus is the authoritative, Holy Spirit-giving Son of God, belief that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and a willingness to submit to and follow after the Lord of all. That is John's baptism. That Jesus is speaking of. And he wants to know, do you think that's from heaven or from man? Basically, did John make that up? Or is this of God? So let me ask you, where are you today? What do you believe about John's testimony? Do you believe it was from heaven? Do you believe it was from man? Do you believe that, that a perfect, holy, created God created all things to be enjoyed, created you to have a relationship with Him? Do you believe that this God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, and that the only way that anyone could have a relationship with Him is to be perfectly obedient to Him? That's just how holy He is. Do you recognize that you are not? That you've sinned? That you've rejected God. That you've tried to live your life without Him. That you've tried to live as if this is your world and you are God. That you are the authority. You've rejected Him in thought, in word, in deed. You've set yourself up under His wrath because you don't want Him. Do you recognize that that is worthy of God's eternal wrath against you? He's that holy. Do you see your need of Jesus? Do you see that, that there's no way that you can ever approach God on your own terms? That your good deeds, that your religious activity is not enough to satisfy the eternal wrath of God against you? Do you see that you need that Lamb of God to take away your sin? To substitute Himself on the cross for you, and to rise again to prove that the power and penalty of death has, uh, of sin has been satisfied, and that God's wrath against sin has been vanquished because of Christ's sacrifice for sin. Do you see your need of that? Do you want to be reconciled to God? Do you see that He is Lord and Savior? Do you want to follow Him? Guys, I hope you do. I hope you respond today. I do. Don't put it off. 
So accept that John's baptism is from heaven, and to accept it from heaven is, is to accept that everything that he said and everything that he did as being from heaven. Okay? And to accept John's ministry as being from heaven means to accept the fact that Jesus is from heaven. Friends, we're all going to have to answer to Jesus. <laughs> You're going to have to. There's no way around it. Each of us must give an account. Do I believe that Jesus is from heaven or do I think that he's from man? The root issue that Jesus is getting to is the question of unbelief. Do you believe Jesus? There's no middle ground here, right? Either you believe in his authority as being from heaven and you follow him or you reject it as a man and you will be judged. There is no other option. And that leads us to our third point, verses 31 through 33. These authorities are left questioning to themselves, really, what is authority? Jesus put the question on them, and even though they had come to him on their own turf, they had asked their own question, they had demanded their own response, Jesus turns it right back around and says, no, this is my turf. This is my house. You will answer my question, and you will do it now. But instead of, of really kind of thinking and discussing, what do, we, what do we really believe about Jesus? Notice in verse 31, they're only concerned about how they should respond to Jesus. right? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if, if we say from heaven, then he will say, well, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. Now notice that they're not concerned about truth. They are not concerned, they're, they're only concerned about how they would be perceived, right? They're not going back to the word. They're not reevaluating their preconceived notions. No, it's all about what are people going to think of us? That's all that they care about. It's not as though they're deliberating whether or not his baptism was from heaven. The simple fact is they don't care. They don't care. They only care about how their answer will be perceived. They know that if they say that John's baptism was from heaven, that they will be charged by Jesus by, with unbelief. And if they say that it was from man, then the crowd is going to charge them with unbelief. Either way, they're in a trap, aren't they? You're unbelieving. Face it. Look at it. You don't believe. You don't even care. The only reason they didn't deny John is simply because of the people. But they think that they haven't come to a decision about John when their discussion actually proves that they had. They didn't care one way or another because they think that they are the authority. You see that? I, 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 really, I really don't care about John's baptism because I'm the authority here. I'm in charge. Right? I know God's word. I, I don't have to look at that. I don't have to deal with that. Right? They think that they stand outside of God's judgment on this issue. They think that they are exempt. 
God has placed them in authority, and they are the ones with the credentials to understand and apply God's word. Not John, not Jesus, right? They didn't go through the same process. They don't have their degrees, right? They weren't affirmed by the church, right? All of those things. So they're not officials. They can't have anything good to say. But the reality is, they don't care about what God says or what God knows. They're only concerned about they're not concerned about knowing or following him. They only care about how the people perceive them as authorities. They don't want to lose their status before the eyes of others. And though they spent a lifetime around the word of God, they were totally blind to it. They had no understanding of God. No understanding of his plan or his purposes. And consequently, they have no authority and are no authority to others. Every bit of authority we have is a derived authority from the authority of God. To think that we can hold that in ourselves is just absolute foolishness. Ironically, the people recognized true authority better than these religious leaders did. They at least recognized that John really was a prophet. They believed that much. They didn't connect all the dots, but they believed that much. And here's the thing about truth. Truth never leaves you in neutrality, right? If you hear the word, if you hear the truth, you're you're not the same, right? Either you accept the truth and you receive more truth and you keep moving that way, or you hear that truth and you reject the truth and you're hardened towards it. Those are the only ways. You can't just kind of sit right in the middle and kind of continue through life, just coasting with that same level of truth. That's not the way that it works. Those, so I, I guess I would say, you know, you need to beware of deceiving yourself, all right? It's real easy because we read the Word sometimes and, and we uh, come to church on Sundays, we perform our religious activities, and maybe we've been a Christian for a really, really long time. We just think we got this. I, I get this. I understand this. I, I, I know how to apply this to my life, or I think I know how to apply this to my life, when in reality we don't. We kind of say, well, maybe in this way, but but not this way. This is mine. These leaders thought that they had the market on God's truth. In reality, they were blind. And before we look at how they respond, there are a couple of things that we need to add. First of all, if you are wrestling with God's truth, that's a good thing. Do you hear me? That's a good thing. But here's what you need to do, okay? you need to seek someone out who understands more of the Word of God than yourself. Okay? You can't just seek out somebody that's on the same level as you. Okay? In, in this passage, what we have are unbelievers who think that they are in, in authority discussing with unbelievers who think that they are in authority. What's going to happen there? They are going to remain unbelievers who think that they are in authority. That's what's going to happen. Right? If you are a skeptic and the only person that you talk to is a skeptic about this issue, guess where you're going to remain? A skeptic. If you are a doubter speaking to only doubters, you're going to remain a doubter. It's that simple. Right? If you really want to wrestle with these issues, if you really want to figure out, is Jesus the authority? You can't talk to somebody that's where you're at. Same life situation, same level of knowledge and all that kind of stuff. You have to seek someone out who knows more and applies more and understands more and is willing to follow it more. That's, that's the key. 
So please do that. Alright? Don't just kind of sit in the same pattern because that's where you're going to stay. And recognize that if you keep sitting in the same pattern, that's really what you want. So, if you have questions about the Lordship of Jesus and the the impact that that ought to have on your decisions and choices, again, talk to someone who knows. Talk to someone who lives it. Talk to someone who's a little bit further down the journey than yourself. And listen carefully to what they say and take heed for the sake of your soul. Wrestle with the truth with someone who can take you to it and explain God's Word. And this is not always really difficult. You know, I had a conversation with a guy this week over the issue of baptism. You know, and he's like, you know what? I was just kind of looking for something more that's there, but the Word was really straightforward. I'm like, yeah, it is. Just got to do it, you know? Just boom, you know? I mean, God doesn't have to make everything like Bible code, you know? Not that God makes it Bible code. But we like to think of it that way. But here's a, here's a word for you believers, okay? If you are a professing Christian, right, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Word of God, you are obligated to know God's Word. All of you have the responsibility to learn God's Word, to know God's Word, so that you can disciple other people that have questions. Do not sit where you're at. It is not okay. It's not left to the professionals. We can see that they are very blind. You have an obligation to know God's Word and to be able to share it with other people. Take that seriously. God has placed you uniquely in the situations in your lives to be able to interact with people that no one else can. I can't interact with people that you come into contact with daily in the same way that you can. I'm here to help. I'm here to train you and equip you for the work of ministry. And I'm going to do it to the best of my ability, but it's up to you. Parents. Who's going to be more instructive when it comes to the souls of your children than you? Think about your coworkers. Think about your classmates. Think about your family and friends. Think about the people in your neighborhood. Unless I'm in your class, which I'm not, right? Unless you live in my neighborhood, which, you know, Keith is okay, but we live on very different streets, right? You know, then, then the reality is I'm not going to be able to have the same impact. So own it. And then one other thing before we look at verse 33. Fear God and not man. All right, we can be more interested of what people think about us rather than what God thinks about us. These religious leaders feared people. And what has what you fear has control over you. What you fear is what you serve. Okay, so you think about, what what am I afraid of? Am I in this routine of people pleasing? Do I just want to tell people yes, or maybe it's a fear in a particular area? That owns you. That's your authority. You serve that. And Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For, for, I, uh, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
You know, we are made to fear God alone, to obey and to revere God alone. Religion, for the sake of putting on airs and putting on appearances to be seen as holy in the eyes of others when our hearts are unchanged, is absolutely blasphemous. God is not pleased with it. You are not serving Christ just because you show up on Sunday or you happen to have a quiet time. Right? It, it goes far beyond that. It's where your heart is. You know, these appearances are not going to save you. These religious leaders were not saved one bit because of their religion. And so you have to look to Jesus and understand who He is and what He has done for you and follow Him, not man. That is not going to be convenient. That's not going to be easy. That's not going to be plush. At times it means you meet in a kind of a crazy, artsy building in the middle of downtown Urbana because that's where the unbelievers are. It's not a bad thing that we don't have a building. I'm I'm happy we don't have a building. We as Christians are not beyond the reach of self-interested expediency. Just like these religious leaders, we are tempted to take the easy way out. We are tempted to take the comfortable road. We are tempted to compromise again and again and again and again and again and think nothing of it because we kind of look at what our our ideas about ourselves are rather than the reality of the choices we make and how that wells up to who we really are. Don't give in to fearing man, all right? True freedom comes in obeying God alone. Don't spend your life, don't waste your life in fearful pursuits of what the world tells you is a good thing. It might be a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. And it can blind you to God's truth. And I say that, man, I pray that as we as a congregation would prefer truth over convenience, now, I could say a whole lot more, but I'm, I'm talking way too much. All right, so how did they respond in verse 33? So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, this is ironic. I love the irony in Mark. You have to get this. These people came to Jesus Asking a question, demanding an answer, and the reason why they did it was to make a fool of Jesus or to get him to incriminate himself. That was their goal. And what ends up happening? Jesus turns it around, asks them a question, demands a response. They end up looking like fools and they incriminate themselves. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, these are the leaders, right? These are the scholars. These are the academics. These are the powerful authorities in, in Jerusalem and in, in, in among the Jewish people as a whole. And what do they say to Jesus as a response to his question? Duh, I don't know. <laughs> Come on, man. They're playing dumb, Right? They're playing dumb. Now, the truth is they do know. They do know what they think. They know that he's that John's baptism is not from heaven. They're not willing to say that, though, because, you know, then they'd be cursed with unbelief. And, and they're not willing to say that it's from man because then the people will go after Jesus instead of after them. And so they, they claim ignorance. They're lying. And so they incriminate themselves. Not fooling anybody. 
They knew the truth. They just didn't want the truth. And guys, here's the thing. When it comes to the difference between belief and unbelief, the the difference between obeying the authority of Christ and not, is not the difference of, of, of not knowing the truth. It's not wanting the truth. They didn't want the truth. They couldn't handle the truth. I had to slip that in. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so since they rejected John and the truth that they had already received, there was no need for Jesus to reveal his own authority. It was wasted because if they're not going to believe John, they're certainly not going to believe him. It doesn't matter. But even still, Jesus left no doubt. In turning this question on them, it exposed the truth about them, that they were blind people pleasers rather than faithful God-fearers. Because if they were in this situation, they would have repented. And there's a lesson for us all. We all sin. We all struggle with unbelief. We do not obey the authority of Jesus perfectly. And when we face with those decisions, we cannot claim ignorance. We cannot continue in undecision. We need to repent. You know, they try to hide behind their unbelief behind ignorance and indecision. And um, so often we're, we're confronted with the truth. We just want to play dumb. We do. We want to play dumb. We want to act like I didn't hear it. We want to act like I, I, I don't need to respond. And, and it doesn't work that way with God. You're not going to get ease, off easier if you claim ignorance. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is unbelief. So don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can play dumb with God. He does not buy it. He knows your hearts. And neither will indecision work. And again, so often when we are confronted with the truth of God's character, of God's will, of God's purposes, we try to call for a recess. I just want to take a time out, right? I, I, I don't want to deal with this right now. I want to deal with this later. I want to put this off. Yeah, I, I, kind of, I, I see this. I see. I realize what I need to do. But, but, but I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it right now. Okay, not yet, God. Not, not yet. I, I, want to, I want to put off obedience as long as I possibly can. I want to try to remain in indecision. And this happens in a hundred different ways in our lives. It happens all the time. We want to put it off. We want to be like, like Augustine. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. What do you answer in this statement? God, I know I need to do this, but I don't want to do it yet. What is that for you? God, I see that you want me to do this, but I, I, I don't want to. I don't feel like I'm ready. Did God leave it up to you? He didn't. Fill in the blank. God, I recognize that I need to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. God, I realize I need to talk to somebody about this porn addiction. God, I re- realize that I, I need to, to be baptized or, or to join a church. God, I realize that, that I'm in a compromising relationship and I've got to get out of it, whether I like it or not. We're faced with those all the time. We can't just put it off. 
We can't just remain in indecision, right? That is unbelief. It's like I say to my kids, to delay is to disobey. All right? You can't say when I get out of college or, you know, when I get settled, when I get a wife, when I have kids, I'll do this. God is calling you to do it today, right now. To not do something that God, we know that we should do, those are sins of omission. Those are sins, guys. It's not just doing things that we shouldn't do. It's not doing the things that we should. Okay? It's rejection of God and His rightful authority over your life. And God is not going to excuse you for convenience sake. God is not going to excuse you for the sake of tradition. This is what you're used to. This is what you're familiar with. This is the way that it's always been. He doesn't care. He cares about you, but he doesn't care about your traditions. If he is the authority, which he is, then we must submit to him. So don't try to remove yourself from the truth the way these religious leaders did. Don't try to fool yourself into thinking, you know what, I'm exempt from this. I I, I don't have to respond to this right now. Okay? Okay? You don't have that option. Jesus has all the authority from heaven. He is Lord and not you. He owns it by right as who He is, as the Creator who who sustains, who created, who upholds the universe. And He has purchased it again with His own blood. He has bought it twice. It's His. So repent and trust in Christ. He is the authority. Are you going to submit to Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it penetrates deep into our souls. And God, we confess that we try to live in unbelief. We try to live in sin. We try to live without you as if this is my world and I'm in control of my world when we're not. God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who are here so that they would come to repentance, that they would desire to follow after Christ and to not seek their own, their own gain, to not seek what they think is best, but recognize that you are wise and you are good and you know what is best for them. That you're calling them to something more than what this world has to offer and it will pay off far more than anything this world could ever give. We don't have authority. We're not powerful. No matter what position we exalt ourselves to, like the Sanhedrin, we're nothing before you. I've got to pray that you open our eyes to that. See your goodness. See your kindness. See the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and that we would run to him as Lord and Savior of all. It's in his name we pray. Amen.